Judges chapter 6, and we'll dismiss our children for their children's ministry. This time, Judges chapter 6 is where we're turning. I started Sunday night in dealing with the matter there out of the book of Joshua as to how we can get the most out of this journey that we're on and maximum Christian living. And, um, and so I'm going to continue with that. And what we're looking at is just different people in the Bible who were able to achieve and experience what God had for them, even if the odds were against them, humanly speaking. And we're looking tonight at one whose name is Gideon. And we're going to see here in this passage of Scripture in chapter 6 and chapter 7, some things that will give us insight as to uh, how God can use a person and the people, the kind of people that God uses. And so if we would just... Um, Get to Judges chapter number 6, and we'll stand together, and we'll read here these um, first verses will be verse number 7 through verse number 10. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. By the way, just to make a parallel and a connection, this is the same message that Paul is giving in Galatians chapter 2 and 3. God is just reminding his people, I saved you from Egypt. And that is, for us, a picture of salvation. They came out of the bondage of Egypt and he delivered them so that they could have all the inheritance and possess all the possessions that God had for them. God says, I've given you the victory. You're going to win, but you've not obeyed. And Paul's going to get to that in Galatians chapter 3 as he turns the corner from dealing with salvation coming out of Egypt to possessing all of our possessions in Christ. But I want us to look tonight in light of what we just read, the people that God uses, the people that God uses or the principles of victory. Thank you. Please be seated. The popular writer Max Lucado told a story that is taken from the proceedings of a U.S. Naval Institute. A man is telling what happened one day in the maneuvers in which they were participating in, in which two battleships were maneuvering as they were in a training process. They were at sea. The seas were heavy. The visibility was not good. And um, Brother John, you experienced some of that, didn't you? And um, Mrs. Labine, were you on a ship? And you weren't on the ship. And was Captain on the ship? He was on the ship. And so you imagine those here in our congregation aboard something like that. And the captain was on the bridge, um, on the watch, taking good care of his ship. Again, the seas were heavy. Visibility was not good. 
And a message came to that ship, and the message came from the man on the lookout. And this is what he said. He said, there's a light bearing on the starboard bow. And so the captain said, is the light steady or is the light moving astern? The answer came back from the wing, it is steady, sir. And so the captain said, signal that ship that we are on a collision course and tell them that they are advised to alter their course 20 degrees. And so they flashed that signal to the other light and the signal came back and said, no, you alter your course 20 degrees. The captain was infuriated and he said, Send the message back. I'm a captain. You alter your course 20 degrees. The message came back. I'm a seaman, second class. I advise that you alter your course 20 degrees. The captain now is furious. He said, I'm in a battleship. Alter your course 20 degrees. The message was flashed back. I am a lighthouse. You alter your course 20 degrees. And then according to those proceedings, the man said, we altered our course 20 degrees. Now, God is the lighthouse of the universe. And sometimes we find ourselves on a collision course. And the wise thing for each of us to do is to alter our course because God is not going to alter his. And that's what Israel found out. In Judges chapter 6, in those first six verses, what we would find if we were to read those is that the people of God are intimidated by their enemy. They're impoverished by their enemy. And this happened for seven years. The Midianites would come and they would go. They oppressed the people of God and they put God's people to ignominious shame and, and depressed the, God's people from functioning in the land in which God had placed them. See, it's not enough just to get to the land. God wants them to possess it, to, uh, to work it, to enjoy it. And it was so severe and it was so continuous that God's people were under this oppression. Remember, they were delivered out of Egypt. Why? So they could experience the freedom that God had for them. But they found themselves once again bound. It reminds me of what is happening in America today to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Too much intimidation is taking place to the church. Too much impoverishment because of the enemy. And it's getting worse. Yet we find here in the book of Judges the principles a victory, not just for God's people then, but for God's people now. You know, I believe God would rather forgive us and restore us and use us than to judge us. Now, again, what we just read in verses 7 through 10, we see that God gave the victory, but God's people forgot God. Even sitting here in church tonight, when we're intentional about being here, it is possible to still forget God. And I, again, I think we see the parallel here in America. I don't want to digress too much into this, but I do want to take a moment and say that as a country, we've forsaken our Judeo-Christian heritage. We have forgotten God, and God is turning us over to our enemies. The problem is today, today is what people um, will believe. People will simply believe anything. And there are, there, there are certain things that have happened here in America. Let me give these to you. They're not, they're not going to be on the screen here. But one, we have gone from authority to relativism. We've gone from authority to relativism. Meaning there's no fixed standard. 
of what's right or wrong. It's like trying to play a game, a, a game of football with no boundaries, no goal line, no, no end zone, no, no sidelines, and no rules, and, and yet trying to figure out how can one play it and win it. The theme in the book of Judges is found in Judges 17, in which it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's a recipe for chaos. And we've gone from authority to relativism. And, and, and people are that way today. They want to come to church and they want to, don't, be, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me where to sit. Don't tell me where I have to go. Don't tell me if I have to get involved. Don't, don't, don't tell me. In fact, I had a number of people in those early days of being here who would literally, literally say to me, why don't you let me come to church and leave me alone? Well, that's not what church is. That's not what a disciple does. And, and, and someone comes in, well, we're not, I'm not going to that class. I'm not going to sit here. I'm not going to start church. It says 1030. We're going to, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to start church at 1030. It doesn't make sense. I'm not going to put my kid in the nursery. I'm not, you're not going to tell me what to do. Well, sooner or later, it's not going to work for you. But you have caught the spirit of the age going from authority to relativism. But we've also gone from truth to pragmatism. In other words, we're not asking, is it true anymore? We're asking, does it work? If it works, we'll take it. Whether it's true or not, whether it's right or not, we've gone from truth to pragmatism. People are looking for religion to serve them. Some may have come in tonight because we expect the church to serve me, to cater to my need. And, and the problem with that, and, and you know, somewhere there's going to be, it's not, it can't happen because no one's going to get saved. No one's going to get saved as long as they think God and his church is there to serve their wants and desires. That's not going to happen. You're, you've gone from truth to pragmatism. We're making the whole thing man-centered rather than God-centered. People are looking for religion that brings them health and wealth and happiness rather than asking, what is right? What is truth? And by the way, do you know that God's not here to make you happy or healthy? No, he's here to give you hope in him. Hope, Bible hope is God expectation. But we've gone from authority to relativism. We've gone from truth to pragmatism. And then number three, we've gone from reason to feeling. Reason to feeling. We've gone from, in our world today, psychology has replaced theology. Well, you know, if, we, if, we, if I go through that discipleship, if I listen to you preach the way you preach, it's, just, it's going to put me in a bad mood and I just can't handle that. It just, it just does something to me. And so taking that tranquilizer is going to change your life, isn't it? You know what happens in that realm? Sin is no longer the enemy. Sadness is. Oh, you just make me sad when you preach. No, your sin did that. And you're feeding your sin and you're coddling your sadness. The great thing in America is to feel good about yourself. As long as you feel good about yourself, that's all that really matters. But that's not what God thinks. 
So we've gone from authority to relativism, from truth to pragmatism, from reason to feeling, but we've also, as a result of that, we've gone from convictions to opinions. From convictions to opinions. Well, I feel this, or what is truth for you may not be truth for me. Every man just simply does that which is right in their own eyes. Our kids are being told in college, you can't be certain about anything. Being told in, in, in kindergarten. Now, you can't be certain about anything. One professor said that. We can't know uh, nothing for certain. And one of the students said, Professor, are you sure about that? He said, I am certain. <laughs> See, the result of all this, the result of this kind of mindset is moral confusion. And our kids don't know how to play the game. They don't know where the sidelines are again. They don't know where the boundaries are. And kids today, they don't know what's what. They're being told that, that it, whatever you think, it's good and right for you. Whatever you want, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. The word sin is forgotten in America. Recently, we've seen a man presenting himself as a woman named Leah Thompson, who outcompetes the nation's best female athletes, the NCAA Division I swimming championships, while at the same time, the USA Today has named Rachel Levine another man now presenting himself as a female, as one of its women of the year in the great United States of America. I'm telling you, in America, the enemy is not sin. It's guilt. Let me just give you some recent magazine articles. One, how to stop being so tough on yourself. Two, guilt can drive you crazy. Another one says guilt mongering. Another says getting rid of the guilt. Another says stop pleading guilty. Here's another one. Guilt, letting go. Here's another one. Don't feed the guilt monster. By the way, Jesus didn't die for your guilt. He died for the sin that causes the guilt. What we're saying is today we want to live in a no-fault society. And so we're not worshiping the God of the Bible. We don't have a fixed standard of right and wrong. Everything is relative. We're living in a pragmatic society. The victimization is the code word of the day. Nobody's sinful. Instead, they're just sick. Nobody's evil. Instead, they're just ill. Nobody's wicked. They're just weak. Guilt is out of date. Sin is old-fashioned. And we're in a battle today between light and darkness, good and evil, heaven and hell, God and Satan. And the book of Judges covers this in detail. But tonight we're just looking at the principles of victory. Listen, if we're going to be used of God, and as a church, if this church is going to be used of God, and as a Christian, if you're to be used of God as a husband and as a wife, there are some principles of victory that God has reiterated to us in the Word of God. And we're going to look here at this principle of victory from this man, Gideon. The New Testament tells us that these Old Testament examples, these characters are given to us as, as an admonition, as an example to us that we could see maybe in picture form what Bible truth is, um, is given to us in, in principle form in the New Testament. So I want, to, I want you to see certain principles, four principles tonight in Judges 6 and 7 that identify the kind of person that God uses. Notice in verse 11. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah that pertained unto 
Joash, the Ibezerite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? I want to tell us tonight and want us to get this down that those people that God uses and that first principle of victory. Remember, we see here a clear picture. God has given victory. He's promised victory. He has established victory. But he says, you've got to take it. You've got to experience it. And that's why we say in, in the Christian life, we don't go to victory. We're going from victory to victory. So number one, what we just read here in these few verses of Gideon is that the people that God uses, number one, are people who have seen God. People who have seen God. Drop down to verse 22. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And notice going down to verse 23. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee. Fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Unto this day it is yet in Ophrah of the Ibizanites. That name, Jehovah Shalom, simply means Jehovah Shalom. Our peace. Now here's the point. Gideon was threshing wheat. He's hunkered down. He's actually hiding away in a wine press. And he's afraid of the Midianites. And God appears to him. Aren't you glad that God can find you even when you're afraid? And here is Gideon. God shows up to him and he has this vision of the Almighty. And here's Gideon living in defeat and fear until he looks and he takes his eyes from the enemy and he puts his eyes one more time on God. Sometimes we may wish, I've, I've thought this as well, well, I wish God would speak to me like he spoke to Gideon through the angel of the Lord. I wish sometimes it could be that clear. But I want to tell you, don't fall into that trap. Because you and I have something better than Gideon ever had. We have the wonderful word of God. You have, if you had the Bible, you have God's very word. You have something more than Gideon ever had. You have the Holy Spirit of God, if you're saved, living inside you. And you don't have to go out whining and complaining about the fact God's not speaking to me. If you have the Bible, you have the very word of God. If you're saved, you have the very person of God living in you. I want to tell you, God wants to speak to you. Do you want to hear from him? Are you ready to listen to what God is saying? But I'm saying that you will never have victory in your life, in your home, 
in your school, in your business, in your neighborhood, in our church, in our society, until first of all, we see God. I mean, we, we get a, a glimpse of God. Like Isaiah in chapter number six, he, he lifts up his eyes and he sees God high and lifted up and it did something to him. God wants you and he wants you to see him. He wants you to see that he's big, he's strong, he's mighty. I want you to see a second thing tonight as we look at the people that God uses. Notice over in chapter number seven now in the first three verses of chapter seven. Notice in verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, who was Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. What is it that God is emphasizing and pointing out? Well, he's pointing out another facet as to the kind of people that he uses. Not only must it be people who know God and see God and experience God. But number two, it has to be people who are not afraid. People who are not afraid. Now God has spoken to Gideon and God has said to Gideon, I'm your strength. I am your peace. I am your victory. Now you trust in me. Now when Gideon had his eyes upon the Lord, he gathers an army. He, he gathers an army of 32,000 men, but God doesn't seem to be interested in numbers. Not, not when it comes to who gets the glory. Look again at verses one through three. Here's Gideon. He's got an army of 32,000 soldiers and he says to them, everybody listen to me. God has said that I'm to tell you that anybody who is afraid, you can go home. Now Gideon, I, I am certain he thought maybe a couple dozen would leave. But after the dust settles, 22,000 went home. Now what's the principle? The principle is God cannot and God will not use cowards. God says, everybody who's afraid, you go home. Fear suits you for failure. Fear does not suit you for fighting. Why did God want the cowards to go home? Because, listen, fear is infectious. It's infectious. You put this in the margin of your Bible, Deuteronomy 20 and verse number 8. And the officers shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return into his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. Remember when Joshua sent out those 12 spies? Ten came back and gave a fearful report, and nobody wanted to go into the land. 
Remember, I gave the illustration Sunday morning about a couple who just recently had gone to a church and, and the church was taking them into discipleship. One lady said to this new member that only people who just get saved need discipleship. And she bought into that and she refused discipleship. And they stayed on their collision course until she and her husband have separated, divorced, and every one of those children have gone into the world. It's heartbreaking. In churches today, we're always faced with people who are fearful, who don't believe that God can do what God wants to do. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but a spirit that is of power and of love and of a sound mind. Listen, the Bible says in Philippians 1 and verse 28, Paul says, in nothing, be terrified by your adversaries. 1 John 4 and verse 4, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. No reason to be fearful. I'm speaking to someone today who could teach, but you don't teach because you're afraid. Speaking to someone, of course, maybe uh, when it comes to the matter of tithe, you don't tithe because you're afraid. I'm speaking to someone tonight, maybe who ought to witness, but you don't witness because you're afraid. Some could sing, but the uh, icy fingers of fear have gripped your throat and you cannot sing because of fear. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, again, remember, God's not given to us that spirit of fear. Fear and faith do not live in the same compartment. Fear will conquer faith or faith will vanquish fear, but one will conquer the other. Now, here's the principle. First of all, you need what Gideon did. You and I need to see the Lord. We need to get alone with the Lord. We need to have fresh, regular encounters with God. You want God to bring about the victory that he's already provided you? You want the present of victory to be opened up in your life so that you can have Christmas every day because of the victory that's in Jesus? Then you need to see God. You need to get into the presence of God. And, uh, and after you've seen God, see if anything else seems truly big to you. See if God seems big to you. Then God says, if you're afraid, if you're fearful, I can't use you. But you need to let God move you into that realm of not being afraid. Then there's a third truth. People that God uses are not only those who've seen God and those who are not afraid, but notice in verse number four of chapter seven, and the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many, the 10,000 that are left there's still too many. Bring them down into the water and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people into the water and the Lord said unto Gideon, everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, 
by the 300 men that lapped will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. And let all the other people go every man unto his place. I got cracked up reading it this afternoon. I still get cracked up. I just imagine, remember Gideon was found by God hiding. And then he gets an army of 32,000. God says, if you're afraid, go home. 22,000 leave. He's left with 10,000. And God says, you still have too many. Um, the Midianites, they, they have a host. Um, God's people are still outnumbered at this point. And God says, you still have too many, Gideon. And so he takes the, um, these 10,000 and God says, Gideon, we're going to have a test. Bring them down to the stream and let every man refresh themselves and tell every man to drink. And the 10,000 people lined up among the stream and there were monitors there to watch. And the people did not know that they were being tested. And by the way, we don't always know that God is testing us at times either. The Bible says in Luke 16, 10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. But he that is unjust in that which is least is unjust also in much. The Bible says in Luke 16, 11, if you haven't been faithful in that which is least, God's not going to commit to you that which is much. Now, you don't always know and recognize when God is testing. I was reading about a man when, when he would hire people, he would take them for a ride in their automobile. He would say, would you take me somewhere? And he'd get into their automobile and he'd look around. And he wanted to see if their car was messy. And if it was messy, he decided on the spot he would not hire them. The man driving the car had no idea he was being tested. Henry Ford would also take prospective executives out for lunch. And he would watch. And if a man would salt his food without ever first tasting it, he would not hire him. Henry Ford said, the man doesn't have any sense. He's got to taste his food to see whether it needs salt before he douses it with salt. You know, God does the same thing with us. He's testing us, not for his sake, but for us to see. I mean, who is thinking now that he's being tested by the way he puts salt on his vegetables? I want to say to each of us that God's watching us even in the small things. And these fellows are saying, go out there and I want you to get a drink of water. You deserve it. And there's two categories of people that, that God divides them into. There's the people who put their mouths in the stream. There were those people who got down on all fours and put their mouths in the stream and began to drink down in that muddy water. Well, you talk about being vulnerable to the enemy. That's what God is exposing. You'll be vulnerable to the enemy down there on all fours, your belly in that slime and your snout in that water, sucking up the water. But that's the way some were drinking. In fact, 9,700 of them drank the water that way. And then there were left 300. The 300 people lapped up the water like dogs. 
This was a group that got down on their knees and they took the water to their mouths and, and they kind of lapped it up like, um, like, like a dog. They didn't put their mouths in the water. They didn't get down on their bellies and to drink up the water. No, they were staying in a form of watchfulness and vigilance. So number three, what is the kind of person that God uses? Number one, people who've seen God. Two, people who are not afraid. Number three, people who know how to watch and be sober and be vigilant. Recently said to several, because of what God's doing in our lives, what God's doing in our midst, there's still a devil. As long as, as you're just going with the current, doing what you want, the way you want, the devil's not going to bother you. You're already complying with his wishes. But when you are seeking God, the devil's going to step in with vengeance. Well, how are you going to be prepared? By being vigilant. God said, those are the 300 men that I want. They were not cowards, and they also were not careless. See, that's the balance. We don't want to be cowards, but we also don't want to get careless. I, I feel for a lot of places, a lot of carelessness in ministry, carelessness as a preacher, carelessness with music, because we, we again, we, we take some of those same ingredients I mentioned that the world has. We take pragmatism. If it works, let's do it. Not if it's right. Not whether it pleases God. And we begin to justify things. We, we, we might think, well, we're not cowards, but we have become careless. See, God's looking for people of valor. God is looking for people of vigilance. And when I tell you that we're not to be terrified by our adversaries, when I tell you that God has not given us the spirit of fear, that does not mean, therefore, that we're to be casual. I'm talking about in our inner man. That we're to be just reckless in, in, in our uh, walk with him. Remember 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. Be vigilant. Remember, this is Peter writing. This is the same Peter that in Matthew and when Jesus was speaking and um, Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And Peter gave the right response. Your, your, your truth, your God, you're the son of the living God. You, you are, you're the authority. You're the master. And Jesus said, you didn't get this from your own human ingenuity. You didn't get this from your abilities. This is divine. And Jesus began to speak about this very journey that he's on, this very plan. Remember, he's the lighthouse. He's not altering his course for anybody. And he's saying I've, why I've come and what I'm going to do. And Peter hears it and says, that doesn't sound like that's going to work out real well with what I've got in mind. And Jesus looks right at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter's not Satan. But Jesus knew he was being influenced 
because of a moment of carelessness in the inner man. And Peter, even after that, said, I don't know about the rest of them. I think, I think these guys are a little bit weak, but I'm not going to deny you. And Jesus pointed out, Peter, you are. It's not your resolution that's going to make the difference. It's not your giftedness or your abilities. Peter was very gifted, but there's a difference between being gifted and being spirit-filled. Peter did fail. He failed miserably, terribly. He blew it. But he did find restoration and revival. And years later, he's the one who said, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Again, think with me. He's not interested if you're already playing. Uh, I come to church and I'm supposed to be in church. I have on the right, right mask and right, right disposition and I do all those right things. But when I step out of church, it's me time. It's me time, baby. I do whatever me wants to do. You ain't telling me what to do. The devil says, I don't need to devour you. You're doing a good job yourself. He's looking for the Peter who says, I didn't come this far to deny the Lord. I'm sticking with him. I'm not backing down. And here comes one to arrest Jesus. And, and Peter's so serious about this, he draws out his sword to whack off the guy's head and misses and he gets his ear. I mean, here he is. I want to fight. We're going to have a fight before this church goes down. But he wasn't. Vigilant and sober on the inside. How do you know? Well, he couldn't engage where the real battle was fought in prayer. Jesus said, would you come with me to the prayer meeting? And he took Peter, James, and John, and all they could do was sleep through it. And here you have God giving insight. I'm telling you, I am nudging you. And there's a reason why I'm telling you to get out of bed. There's a reason why I'm not letting you go. There's a reason why I'm whispering to you. There's a reason why I'm trying to convict you. There's a reason I'm trying to shake you. And you say, I don't know, but I think God's speaking to me. Yes, he's trying to speak to us. He's trying to get us to see that the hiss of the serpent, he is there. He's around us. He's subtle. He's been at this for thousands of years. And the very first creation in a perfect environment he attacked and he went after with vengeance to destroy Amen. then he went after Jesus himself oh he's not intimidated but by the blood of Jesus and when you and I get careless we're stepping out from underneath the protection of the powerful, protecting blood of Jesus. We must be people who know what it means to watch, be sober, be vigilant. Let me give you the last one. Notice in verse number nine. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto Gideon, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Pharaoh, thy servant down to the host, and thou shalt hear what they say. 
And afterwards shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. And went he down with Furah, his servant, unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. And the Midianites. And the Amalekites. And all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number. I mean, God is telling us how big this army is. I mean, he's even bringing their vehicles into the equation. As the sand by the seaside for multitude. What kind of people does God use? People who've seen God. People who are not afraid. You say, I'm still hung up with not being, how can I not be afraid? See God. You begin to get into God's presence. You find a mortgage payment's not that big. You find tithe is really not that, that daunting. You, you find the opposition of whatever kind is really not that great of an opposition when you see God. And people who know what it means to watch and be sober, be vigilant. But here's the wonderful thing. Number four. The people that God uses, number four, people who have the life of God in them. The life of God in them. Now, here's what they're doing. They're sneaking down into the camp of the enemy. Now, Gideon, he sneaks up there and he listens, perhaps by the campfire. So he's eavesdropping. And notice what, is, what he's hearing in verse number 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites, where we read that, let's go down to verse 13. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley tumbled into the host of Midian and came unto a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it, that the tent lay long. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. For into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshipped and returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. So get it. Here's a campfire. A couple of fellows talking and one man says, Man, I had this dream last night. It was a nightmare. It was the awfulest thing. He said, I saw a piece of barley bread. Now, folks, barley bread is the cheapest bread. It's, it's what you'd get from the day old bakery and it's, it's the coarsest, it's the poorest bread. It was what the impoverished people would eat. So the man said, I saw a piece of this barley bread, a loaf of barley bread, and it's rolling along the ground and it rolls right into one of our tents and inside our, the tents of our warriors. And that piece of barley bread, it hits the tent and it all caves in. And the other man said, Barley bread? You're talking about Gideon. That's Gideon. And Gideon heard that and said, hallelujah. That's me. See, Gideon was that piece of barley bread. Gideon in himself 
was a nobody from nowhere with nothing. But when the Lord said unto him, hell, thou man of valor, Gideon looked behind them and said, who are you talking to? That's like when Paul says, you are more than conquerors. And in and of yourself, you'd have to say, who are you talking to? Because we're nobodies from nowhere with nothing. Gideon said, he can't be talking about me. I'm the least in my father's house. My family is the poorest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. He said, of all the tribes, Manasseh is the poorest of all the families, the family's the, the worst, and of all the kids in my family, I'm the runt of the litter. I mean, I'm the least in my father's house. And God says, yeah, you'll do. God called him a mighty man of valor. Gideon says, I'm just a piece of barley bread. And God said, now you're getting it. Yeah, now you got it. Now you go down there and I will show you what the enemy thinks. Listen, the devil knows more about you than you know about you. I want to tell you, if you could listen to the devil, you can hear what they think when they see Canaan Baptist Church committed to letting God go deeper and the circle go wider. When, when, whenever they hear about the prayer that's taking place and they hear that God's people actually get a hold of God and they see that God is rending the heavens and coming down, here's what you're going to find. The dread of hell is that one of you will wake up to the power that God has given to you. That's the dread of hell. I mean that we would ever understand just exactly who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are actually nobodies from nowhere with nothing, but he is God. He'll always be God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is the army of Gideon, the 300. And let me tell you, friend, God wants to put his life in you. Let me give you a verse that'll thrill you. It thrilled me today. Judges chapter six and verse 34. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. The spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. You know, what that says, if we look at its original uh, translation in the Hebrew, the spirit of the Lord, the Lord clothed himself with Gideon. I haven't worn this in a long time. This is my special coat. But I wanted to bring it. It's Wednesday night. I, and, um, but I, I wanted you to see my special coat because this has been able to, I, 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 I used it in, in evangelism uh, some, and I've used it in some very difficult times because this coat's been able to do things that, that a lot of coats can't do. And, um, and I've been able to, to let this coat lay down and, and, and I've been able on command to be able to get it to, to move. And um, so I want you to watch it. Can you see it from back there? No, watch it. Now watch it. Now, um, I'll just give it a little bit of time there because it's got it's to get into um, a position and just, it's, you know, it's, everything's got to start working right. But, um, but it, it's very special. Now keep your eyes on it. Now, now coat... Sit up. I, want, I love this when it happens. It's always, it's always been a, 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 it's, it's a great blessing. It's, it's, it's just been it's so special to me. All right, you know, just, just give it a time here. It's, I don't know what's wrong with Coat, sit up. 
I mean, let's try this one. Because I, I like it when it does this too. Sometimes it scares the little kids. So, so um, just, just don't, don't get too nervous. Coat, wave your arms. Well, yeah, maybe you try this here. All right, coat. Like we used to do, you know, when we were in the services and, and, and you'd wave it, wave the Bible. All right, coat, wave the Bible. Well, you know, it's like some church members. Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's not here. You know, you can't expect it to, to do much. And, but but, um, but hold, hold on a second. Watch this. Watch this. Hold on just one second. Coat. Stand straight. Coat. Wave your arms. Hey. Coat. Embrace the Bible. What did I tell you? <laughs> Does yours do that? <laughs> you see, preacher, you, you know, your, your light's flickering. <laughs> and that's not the coat. That's you. Yeah, I know. And that wasn't Gideon either. It wasn't Paul either. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, it's not I. It's Christ in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not the man that gets the victory. It's God in the man. Judges 6.34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. You know what that's saying? God wore Gideon like a suit coat. And Gideon was along for the ride. Oh, he had to trust and obey. He had to cooperate. But Gideon's just a barley bread. How is the battle won? It's not your scholarship. It's your relationship. It's not your ability. It's your availability. It's not your fame. It's your faith. It's not who you are. It's those. That you have, what you have rather. And it's whose you are. I want you to see how this battle was won. And we just have a few moments. Go back to Judges 7. Notice in verse number 15. Get back over there. And we find that he divided the people, 300 men, into three companies. Here's 100, here's 100, here's 100. So he has 300 against the host of Midianites. He doesn't even give them weapons. <clears throat> he gives them pitchers. That's what you would pour water out of. And he gives them lamps within the pitchers. And, and he says... Let's see here, go to verse number 
17, he said unto them, look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, shall ye do. And when I blow with the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch and they had but newly set the watch and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands and the three companies blew the trumpets and break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow with all and they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. <laughs> And they stood every man in his place round about the camp. And all the host ran and cried and fled. And the 300 blew the trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow. You know what I see here how this battle was won? People who have the life of God in them. Verse number 19. And several of the verses. But they were bold. There was boldness. Now listen, we're almost finished. He's got 300 people. God doesn't have to have a lot. God doesn't win with numbers. He doesn't have to have a lot. He just needs people who've seen God. He's looking for people who are not afraid. People who know how to watch and be sober, be vigilant. But here's the wonderful thing. People who have the life of God in them. These are ordinary men. These are ordinary men, but they were obedient men. And Gideon says, all right, now, listen, you've got this trumpet, you've got the pitchers, take a torch, light it, put it under the clay pot, and then 300 of you get over there. Now there's 100 here and 100 here and 100 here, and get ready, watch what I do, and I blow the trumpet then, then, and, and break the pitcher. You do the same thing. And the Midianites, you hear the Midianites, and they're all there, and Gideon says, all right, and he blows the trumpet, and he breaks the pottery, and then there's this sound of the breaking of the pottery, and all the lights all around, 300 shine in the camp of the Midianites, and they shout, the sword of the Lord, and of Gideon. When they did that, friend, there was an incredible confusion in the camp of the enemy. Now, what's it all about? When they blew the trumpets, that's boldness. But then notice in verse 19, second part, latter part of the verse, and they blew the trumpets and they break the pitchers. There's got to be some brokenness. When they broke those vessels, that's brokenness. What does that represent? The people that experience God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, we have a treasure in an earthen vessel. We're that earthen vessel. We're broken. Men throw away broken things. God can only use broken things. We sit in churches so heady, so headstrong. We're so stubborn. We're so high-strung, high-minded. When God says, you ought to be broken before me. Psalm 51, verse 17. You want to know when David experienced revival? When he said, a broken and a contrite heart and spirit thou wilt not despise. Boldness, but brokenness. And God gave the victory. Just look at us today. Look at us tonight. Look around us. What would happen tonight 
If everyone stood, like it says in verse 21, every man stood in their place. What if every one of us stood in our place tonight? Every ordinary barley bread just stood in our place tonight. Listen, gentlemen, listen, I'm almost done. What would happen with no uncertain sound if we blew the trumpet bold for the Lord Jesus? What would happen if we laid our pride in the dust with brokenness? What would happen if we let our light shine with brightness? Listen, this book is, it's an old book, but it's as relevant and fresh as tomorrow's news. People who've seen God, people who are not afraid, people who know how to watch and be sober and be vigilant, people who have the life of God in them. If God wants to wear us like I wear this coat, then with boldness and brokenness and brightness, we give God the glory. God's different than man. Again, man throws away broken things, but God takes the broken things and he uses them for his glory. I want to tell you, your light's not going to shine until, first of all, your old vessel gets broken, brokenhearted before God, a contrite spirit before God, a humility before God. When your life is broken, your light will shine and God's going to use your life and you can confess the victory. God wants you to be a part of the master's minority. He just took 300. Wouldn't even give them, give them weapons. He gave them instruments. God wants to use your life. He wants you to have victory, whether it's in your home, your own personal life, victory over fear, victory over failure, victory over despair, victory over doubt. He wants this church to live in victory. God wants us to be a part of the master's minority. And you can be, if you're willing, to be one that will see God not be afraid to watch and be sober and be vigilant and cultivate the life of God in you. That's what the invitation's about. The invitation is not anything but a big old confession time that God's given to us victory. We confess by coming down these aisles that God has given us the victory, but we're gonna take the victory. We're gonna let God wear us like I'm wearing this jacket. When we wanna go on like like Gideon did before he even saw the victory, he, he gave praise and shout to God. Will you be part of the master's minority? Will you be a part of the committed? Let's stand together, please.